Good morning, family. How's everybody doing? Where are all the Liverpool supporters? Where's Mark Naidu? Is Mark Naidu? Are you here? Come on. If you don't know, I'm a Manchester United supporter, and we beat Liverpool 2-1 yesterday. So, and we scored all three goals. So I just have to, <laughs> have to make a moment of that. Trust you are doing well. And uh, it's been, I, I, as I drove over, I was listening to the worship on, the, on, on YouTube and just enjoying and sensing that God's presence here with us as we had it in the South Church this morning. And I think we're in a significant time in the life of our two churches and what God is busy doing and He's moving everywhere. It's, um, it's really special when you see the Lord's just His initiative that He takes and to lead us and to just His favor upon us as a community in this time. I want to share with you this morning as we're talking about the disciples' quest, and what I'm going to do today is actually spend a little bit of time more in Ephesians 4 and actually talk about Ephesians 4 verse 1 and a particular concept in Ephesians 4 verse 1 a little bit. So I've changed and I'll schedule slightly. Next week we'll do Ephesians 5 and the week after that Ephesians 6, but this week I want to linger, if, you, if you'd allow me, just with Ephesians 4 verse 1, and I want to remind you of what Ephesians 4 verse 1 is all about. And we said that in, in this series, as we're busy with thinking about what does it mean to be a disciple, Ephesians 4 verse 1 is a very key verse for us where we feel Ephesians hinges around this concept that Paul brings to us in Ephesians 4 verse 1. So let me just read the scripture for you again. Uh, I don't think it's going to be on the screen, but let me just read it for you. And uh, please just let these words, I think this is a great verse to actually make a memory verse of and to learn and to carry with us always. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And I want to spend a little bit of time on, these, on the word that is in this verse, the word calling. And what does that mean for each of us? This concept, this idea of calling. I think we often use the word calling, even just in sort of regular life, non-church space, we'll use the word calling. We sometimes talk about somebody that seems to do their job with a real passion and real commitment, sort of with all their heart and their soul, and we'll say that person is really called, they're called to do the job. You, have you ever said that about somebody, or perhaps somebody said that about you? Sometimes we'll use it when, when we see people that work really hard at their jobs and we know that they're not doing it for income or for status or anything. They, they're just passionate about what they do. Sometimes it's wonderful when you, when you have a teacher that, is, that you know they are called to be a teacher or when, when you go to a hospital and a nurse serves you and you know she's called to be a nurse and she, there's just that something different about people like that, that live with a sense of calling. And I think as disciples, it's so valuable for us, and it means so much to us, and I think it's actually very important for us to have a good idea about what this concept, calling, is all about, that we understand our calling. And therefore, Paul writes this, and he says that we must walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And what does that mean in this context for each of us? And and just to remind you, we said in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul mainly focuses, and on, on, one of the ways you can say it, on the wealth we've received in Christ and everything that we've been blessed with in Christ, the, the, the blessings of God and the forgiveness and the adoption and all the wealth we have in Christ, where Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, he uses the word walk more. So how do we walk in the position that we've received in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 as it describes it to us? It's like, how do you walk in the position, let's say, for instance, if our government uh, decides that it, they want to make you an ambassador for our nation to another nation. They give you a position, an official position. But once you go and live in that nation, you have to walk worthy of the position that you've been given. You have to live and represent your nation, our nation in a certain way. My mother was a diplomat, so I understand a little bit about that and how you behave in that place and to live worthy, to, to put a good reflection on there where you come from. It's the same kind of principle. We have received wealth, we have received a position, and now we live in this world and we live worthy of that which we've received. And so much of that is about how we live our calling and the sense of calling we have as believers. So Paul writes here about calling, and, and I think I want to describe calling in two ways this morning, or two ways that it's applied. 
And the first way is the way Paul describes to us here and what I would call the general calling that we all have as believers. Every single believer, every child of God, every Christian has a calling. Amen? And that calling is the same for all of us. We all have the same calling. And this is the calling Paul refers to here, this general call that we are all living under, that we have been called by God. And this call can be described as to love God and to serve His purposes. That's one of the ways you can describe it, to love God and to serve His purposes. Every one of us has been called with this call. In, um, in the McLaren's exposition, he says it the following, it's a little bit old English, so Excuse me for this. So then ye see your calling, brethren. A life that is worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called is a life that conforms to the divine will that is fruitful in all good, that is progressive in its acquaintance with God. In other words, a life that lives towards God, that wants to know God more, that wants to love God more, and at the same time that wants to do good things in this world to represent the kingdom, to build the kingdom. So to love God and to serve His purposes. We all have that call. You and I have that in common. That's our general call as believers, to live our lives, to love God, and to serve His purposes. Will you put your hand on your chest and say, I'm called to love God and to serve His purposes. And that we have in common. That's our general call. So often when we talk about calling, people actually refer to what I would like to call this morning their specific calling. That how we are all gifted and positioned differently in life to do specific things that serves the purposes of God and specific ways that we show our love for God. That is perhaps different from one another. So we have the general call and we have the specific call. And so often you'll have people and they'll, they'll, they'll spend time and money and energy to figure out what is my specific calling in life. Perhaps when you, when you finish school and you're a younger person and you're starting to have, make your choices about what am I going to do in life as a Christian, you say, Lord, what's my calling in life? What do you want me to do? And, and that you talk about your specific call. But it's interesting to me in Ephesians 4 that Paul talks about both. First, he talks about the general call in the verse I read. And then later when we come to verse 11, he starts talking about apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. He starts talking about giftings. Then he starts moving into the space of talking about specific calling. But I think it is purposeful that he first talks about general calling and then only later talks about specific calling. Because your specific calling is based or founded or built on top of the foundation of your general call. You can't get your specific call if you've not done your general call first. We can get so hung up on what is my purpose in life and, and what must I do and what are my gifts and, and we do all of these things that, that we think it's only when we've achieved the specific call that we will walk in the calling of God. But from the word go, when we love God and we say, Lord, like in the words of Jesus, I will seek your kingdom first. I will put your, your will and your purposes and your plans and your agenda first in my life. Then I am beginning to fulfill the call of the Lord. And that should keep us busy enough all by itself. That if you don't yet have a sense and if you don't quite sure and you don't understanding, it's not unfolded in your life very clearly what your specific calling is, your general calling will keep you busy. And that you spend time and invest and do that. Because I firmly believe that it's your general call that positions you so that your specific call can unfold. But if you don't do your general call, your specific call won't unfold. Think of people like Daniel, Joseph, men of character, men of righteousness, men that loved God and stood in God. Think of Esther. It was her general calling, her desire to do the will of God that positioned her in that place where she could fulfill her specific calling and where that wonderful statement could be said by her uncle to her, perhaps you were, you were positioned and made for such a time as this. Every one of us, there's a, such a time as this. You are living for such a time as this. Do you know that if God wanted you to live in any other time, he could have let you live in any other time? Do you think God could do that? But he wanted you to be alive now. He created you, gifted you with specific things. But those specific things can only happen when we attend to our general call to love God and to put him first in everything. 
Is that the desire of your heart? Is that the foundation of your life to say, Lord, in every place, in every moment, in every opportunity I have, I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve your purposes. I'm not too hung up, Lord, first of all, about my specifics. I just want to serve you and love you. When we did Year of Your Life, Trudy and Sean, in Natasha's year, which was with uh, Trudy, uh, with Sean in Year of Your Life, they had a guy on the year that, had a spe- that felt he had a very specific calling from the Lord. And he felt his calling was to be mischievous. Is that the right word? Is that the right way to say it? To be mischievous. His calling was to, he thought he was bringing comedy, but he was just making everybody's life very difficult through pranks that he would pull on everybody. And he would p- invest lots of time and energy and effort into pulling these elaborate pranks on the, re- on the rest of us as students. Uh, one time, for instance, and I can't tell you all of his pr- uh, pranks because I don't want to give the year of your life as any ideas. But the one time, one of the pranks he pulled is we, most of the students lived out on a small holding just outside of Pretoria here and, uh, uh, you know, and, and it had a water tank. So one day he went and bought a box of Omo and poured it into the water tank. So for two days, whenever you opened the tap, foam came out, which is wonderful if you're trying to wash clothes, but not so great if you're trying to make tea or coffee. And it, but it took about two days for the water tank to empty and then for the water to you know, be replaced with new water from the borehole and life could return. But he firmly believed it was his calling in life. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true at all. I think all of us that suffered under his creativity would differ. That that could not, may not have been his specific call. I don't know what your specific call in life is. But God unfolds that as we serve him and put him first in everything. He positions us. I think a great story that shows us this is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this man, normal guy, that found himself in a particular point in history where things were unfolding and God was changing things. God was busy moving things in the nation of Israel. But with most of his countrymen, he found himself in exile in Babylon, taken away from their home, their their home destroyed, their nation destroyed, their cities destroyed, and taken into exile in in Babylon. But as we read about Nehemiah, we, we, we gather that he was a righteous man. Like Daniel and Joseph and Esther, he served the general call to love God and to serve his purposes as he understood it. And he gave his life to the Lord, and in everything, he, he was an upright, just, and righteous man. And he just served God, even in that condition, in that place. He, he didn't get entangled with the, the, the stuff that was going on. Think of all the, the politics and the social stuff and everything that was going on as the people were now taken away and into another nation. He didn't get embroiled and entangled. He just served God and loved God. He reminds me of that wonderful verse that Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, where Paul says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You see, our sense of calling plays into this that every one of us has been enlisted in the Lord's army. We have a job to do. And our life is about fulfilling that calling. First of all, the general part of it, to love God and to serve his purposes. And then as it unfolds in our lives in specific ways. But here's Nehemiah, living his life with this sense of, my life is about God and honoring God. And like others, he did it so well that he became a trusted person, even in a foreign land. To the point that when we read the story of Nehemiah, he is the king's cupbearer. Now, the king's cupbearer, you will probably know, was a very trusted position in the courts of the king. In those days, there were many conspiracies about and and people that wanted to topple the king and take over the kingdom. And and one of the ways they would do that is to kill the king. And uh, often that was done through the way they, what they drank and what they ate. So the the cupbearer's job was literally to be by the king's side and to make sure that the king's food, his wine and everything that he drank was, was good, it was well prepared, it was well presented, but also from time to time, he would, if, the, if the king felt particularly suspicious, he would have to taste. In other words, you know, he was like a secret service agent, like you see on movies and television, that was prepared to take a bullet for the king. 
that his, it was his job to keep the king alive. And if they were uncertain, then he would take a bite and then the king would sit and watch him. And if he started changing color, then the king knew something was wrong. His brother wanted to kill him or somebody was trying to kill him. So it, it was a very trusted position. It also put you in a place where you were one of the people that spent the most time with the king. That when you were on duty, you were right there all the time. It became quite a position of influence. It was often the way that if you wanted to get a message to the king, you would speak to the cupbearer. And the cupbearer would delay your message to the king if they felt it was something the king needed to hear. So here's Nehemiah, this normal guy, just a trustworthy guy, living his general calling in a very difficult situation. But God positions him. And he's the king's cupbearer. One day, his brother comes back from having visited, Nehemiah's brother, comes back from having visited their home nation and been to Jerusalem. And he says, and, and Nehemiah asks him, he says, now how's it going back home? How are the people doing? Some people have moved back to Israel and how are they doing? And, and he says, our, our city of Jerusalem is in ruins. The walls have been broken down. It's a, it's a heap of rubble. It's a disgrace. This, this city that was built to show the glory of our God and to bring honor to our God is now a disgrace. It's terrible. The people are suffering. The people are struggling. The, the, the cities and the other states and people around them are ransacking them and pillaging whenever they want to because there's no wall to protect the city. Anybody can just walk in when some poor person living in Jerusalem is just trying to build their house or trying to get some vegetables growing or perhaps they found an animal and, they, and they're trying to, then somebody can just walk in and steal. They've got, they've got no protection. They've got, they just, it's terrible. Whereas Nehemiah hears this report, his heart becomes heavy. He loves God and he loves God's people. And his heart becomes heavy within him. So much so that for a, a while he looks quite depressed and eventually the king says to him, now what's wrong with you? Now when the king's cupbearer starts looking depressed, the king gets concerned. Because what's going on? Is there a conspiracy? Is there something? So he asks him, he says, what's going on with you? And, and Nehemiah starts telling the king, he says, look, this is the situation. This is heavy upon me. This leads to the king appointing Nehemiah in official position as the governor of Judea, then giving him letters to say, I will support your work of rebuilding Jerusalem and sending Nehemiah, even saying to him, I will supply to you some of the, some of the materials you'll need, all the wood you need or the timber that you need to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city I will provide. Nehemiah was positioned by God because he was faithful in his general call he found himself, happened to find himself in the right place at the right time. When you and I serve God, seek his kingdom first, Jesus said, all these other things will be added unto you. Do the general thing and trust God to unfold the specific. And so here Nehemiah goes. And he goes back to his home city, and, and you know the story. You can read the book of Nehemiah. It's an amazing story of how in 52 days he rallies the people together, and they rebuild the walls. But as he was starting the process, he realized they had opposition. They had somebody that opposed this. Because in the area, there were other cities. And these other cities were quite happy with the fact that Jerusalem was lying in ruins, because that meant that they now became the strongest power in the area. And there was one of the guys, particularly was a guy by the name of Sanballat, and he was a, a, a ruler of one of the cities with others, Tobiah and, and, and some Arabs and everybody in the area. And, and all these cities were very happy that they could just pillage Jerusalem and that Jerusalem was now in, in ruin. And so as Nehemiah came in, and as Sanballat heard about this, he started rising up and started opposing the rebuilding of the walls. And he did various things to oppose the building of the wall. But Nehemiah knew he was called by God. And he did not allow Sanballat to set the agenda. He did not allow Sanballat to come in and distract him. He did not allow Sanballat to come and entangle him in things that he shouldn't be busy with. He kept his focus on what the Lord wanted him to do to rebuild the wall. Now in every one of our lives... Whether it's your general call 
which is to love God and to put Him first. How many of you know that that requires a rebuilding that we do in our lives? Whether it's your general call or whether it's you stepping out into your specific call that God has for you and you're starting to work and starting to put things together and starting to build something of God's kingdom, that the enemy will resist that. Because our enemy, Satan, does not want us to love God and to rebuild his kingdom. And in that sense, our enemy has the same spirit. Or let me say, St. Ballad had the same spirit as what our enemy has. And that spirit is still alive and well. It's this partisan spirit. It's the spirit that says, for me to succeed, you must fail. For me to do well, there's no space for you to do well. It's this it's the small-minded spirit, that spirit that says there's not enough to go around. The spirit that says, for me and my people to succeed, you and your people must fail. And it's a spirit that really likes that and that wants to, like Jesus said of the enemy, steal, kill, and destroy, to break down all the time. And whenever God is trying to establish His purposes to let people and build a place where people love Him and where people are about His, what is important to Him and about His will, the enemy will come. The Sanballat spirit. There's other spirits that the Scriptures also talk about. Jezebel spirit also operated in this time and others. But today I just want to talk about the Sanballat one a little bit. The Sanballat spirit will come in and say, I want to break down. I want to distract you. I want to keep you from rebuilding the wall and doing what God wants you to do. I think right now as a nation, we are seeing something of the Sanballat spirit that is trying to destroy, is trying to break down, trying to create a space where there's not enough for everybody. There's not enough place for everybody. I think as a nation, we've been through a tough time where through for various reasons we've lost. And, uh, and, and if I use this analogy, our walls have been broken down in many places. Is that okay? Do you think that's true? That in places our walls have been broke, broken down and, and we've lost as a nation. But God is not finished with us. He's busy rebuilding. And right here in our midst, there are people sitting here today whose job it is, is to rebuild some of the walls of our nation. Perhaps there are people here that, and I know there are, people that serve in government or some of our state-owned enterprises, that you are called by God generally, first of all, to love God and to serve His purposes. But perhaps God positioned you for a time like this. And like Nehemiah, you are busy rebuilding the walls. I wonder if there are people here today that, that that's you. you. You work in government in any way, shape, or form, or in a state-owned enterprise. Would it be okay for you to stand, and I want us to pray with, for you, just right now? Anybody for whom that is true, just stand and let us pray with you. Come on. Yeah, let's give them a good round of applause. For the rebuilding of our nation, we need people that understand the general call to love God and to put Him first. And then people that are positioned by God for the specific things for this time that is needed in our nation. Can you stretch out a hand or lay a hand on these people that are standing with you? And let's, let's call upon the name of the Lord and speak favor and blessing and strength over them. Father, I thank you for every person that is, that is called by you. That firstly, they understand their general call to love you and to put you first in everything. But also, Lord, that are placed and positioned by you with the calling in this time. To serve in our nation, to lead in places, to, to, be, to play a part in rebuilding the walls. Father, we pray for the strengthening of their hands today in Jesus' name. We honor them, Father, and we thank you for each of them that you have placed and positioned. Father, and we pray that the enemy's tactics will not succeed, but that they will be able to endure and go the distance and do that which you have called them to do, Father. Right now, we pray that they would just sense just your presence with them. Just your presence with them. Let them not be entangled, but let them be free to serve you and your purposes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We bless them, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you, let's continue to pray for people like these and to pray for our government and for our nation. I believe as a church, we're going through a time of rebuilding our walls. If you've been around here for a number of years, you'll know we've been through a difficult time. 
We're in a time, our, our walls were, some, some of our walls were broken down. Some of our places, they, they came into just not what it's supposed to be. And not in the strength. And it was so wonderful that we had that word this morning that speaks about this be, the better days are still to come. That God has got good plans for us. Amen. God's not finished with us. But right now, the Lord is rebuilding the walls and He's using you to rebuild the walls of this community and of this, of this church. Because every church has a calling, has a general call to love God and put Him first, and then specific calls. We are positioned right here as Hatfield in the capital city of this nation for a reason. And we believe God has called us, and there's an apostolic and a prophetic call on this community and on this church. And we are having to rebuild some of that and rebuild the walls. And I thank you for each person that, that puts that before them and says, I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to be positioned for that as part of this church for what God wants to do. In your own life, God is busy rebuilding. Because every one of us, we're coming back to that original state which God had intended and planned for us to live in, to live in the fullness of His calling, to mature into that which He has for us. And every one of us, we're being rebuilt. So in that sense, we are like Nehemiah. We are about the same project. And I think, therefore, it's helpful that we just be aware, not focus too much, not be too concerned, but just be aware of the strategies of the Sanballat spirit that will come and destroy, try and derail us and, and keep us from achieving our calling. In the Nehemiah campaign, there were three stages that Nehemiah built, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. I've just called them, and I've spoken about this before in 2015. I spoke about this here also. The three stages was that he started the process, then he walked for a period in the process, and then the process came to the close, the point of arriving or completion of the process. In each of those stages, there were specific strategies that the enemy used to try and derail the process and to keep Nehemiah from fulfilling his task. The first was in, we read in Nehemiah 4, about when Nehemiah started. So he just arrived in Jerusalem. He started rallying the people. He started saying, come on, guys, we can rebuild the walls. And, and, and he showed them the letters, and he showed them the wood that he had, and he said, we can do this. And so they just started. They just started rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And then in Nehemiah 2, verse 19, it tells us Sanballat heard about this. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gresham the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The first way the enemy will try to keep you from fulfilling your calling is he will ridicule you and mock you. The Sanballat spirit, it's the first strategy he uses to see if he can knock us off our game is to ridicule us. Now we live in a time in the world where in many parts of the world as the world is changing, as culture is changing, they're starting to talk about the post-Christian era where secular philosophy is, is reigning and ruling the day. And through that, you often see this, that those that have cried for tolerance have become the most intolerant people. And they, and they really do not like people of faith, whether it's Christians, Muslims, or any people of faith. And one of the ways that they, that they deal with us is they ridicule us. Have you been ridiculed as a Christian for your faith? There's a couple of th things particularly that they like to ridicule us for. The first one is they, they like to ridicule us when we stand up and we say we believe in a creator that created everything. We believe in God that there was a specific time where God spoke everything into being. When we start talking about Genesis and in the beginning and we give our conviction about how it all started, that's a wonderful place for us to be ridiculed. Have you ever experienced being ridiculed for that belief? Now in South Africa, we still have many safe spaces where, it's, where people won't, but you'll also start experiencing it more and more. We're being ridiculed for that. Another area where we stand open to be ridiculed in our culture is our convictions and our views on sexuality and how sex is to be practiced. When we stand up and we say that we believe sex belongs in a marriage union between one man and one woman, and we proclaim that boldly, how many of you know that you will be ridiculed for saying that today? You will be called a bigot. You will be called judgmental. You will be called that you are rejecting people and that you, that you have some kind of phobia. And all of these things will be said about us because what we believe. It's easier nowadays to be on a radio station and to tell people that you believe in aliens than to tell people you believe in Jesus. 
you'll be less ridiculed. And that's, it's the strategy of the enemy. Come against us. In 2012, there was a rally in Washington, D.C. of secularists, people that don't believe God has any place in society. And they're between, depends on which report you listen to, that they were between 10,000 and 30,000 atheists, agnostics, people that gathered. And they had this rally to encourage themselves and strengthen themselves in their resolve and, and what they stood for. And they had many speakers, and one of the speakers was this famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. Some of you may know about him. And he encouraged his fellow secularists, and he said, whenever you deal with a person of faith, a person that proclaims to believe in a God, whether it's Muslims, Christians, or whatever, then your, your response is, if you can't convince them of some, that, that it's not right, then you begin to ridicule them and mock them. He literally said this. He said, you, 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 you make fun of them. You belittle them because they're stupid. They're dumb people. I love Ravi Zacharias' response to this. And by the way, he will be with us in 23rd of April. Little plug there. And come and have an open questions and answers evening. But his response to this was, I would love to help you, Mr. Dawkins, and support you. So I'm going to buy you a ticket to Mecca, and you can go practice your, your conviction to go and belittle and mock those that have faith and see how they respond to you. It's easy to do that with Christians because we believe in the opposite spirit. But we live in a time where we feel this opposition. So perhaps in your life, as you've taken a stand in your general call to just love God and to serve His purposes, and you've started changing your behavior to come in line with your belief system, and you've started perhaps saying, there are certain things I'm just not going to do. There are certain things I'm not going to partake in. There are certain conversations I'm not going to have. I believe that we pray for our government. I believe that we honor our government. There are certain things I'm not going to say about presidents past, present, future. There are certain things that I'm not going to do. And when you take stands like that, people will ridicule you. And then we feel the pressure. When you step into your specific calling and you're saying, God has called me to do, there's ridicule that you'll face. Now, how do you deal with ridicule? I think Nehemiah showed us a good way. What Nehemiah did is he just prayed. He said, Lord, I hand them over to you. You deal with them. I'm not going to spend too much attention on this. I'm not going to try and defend myself. I'm not going to start a PR program and a, and a Facebook page and a, you know, a Twitter feed and everything to tell people about how wonderful I am and what my motives really are and how good we are. I'm just going to rebuild the wall and I trust these things to you, Lord. And I think it's valuable and important because what it says of Nehemiah is that he would not become entangled in anything else. He kept the main thing, the main thing. My job is to rebuild the wall. I'm not going to run around and let everybody else set their agenda. I'm not going to be so concerned about my reputation. I'm not going to be so concerned that I'm misunderstood that I'm going to stop building the wall and try and convince everybody else. If he did that, the wall would not have been built in 52 days. But he just kept focused. When the enemy can't put you off by ridiculing you, he'll step up his game and, and go to the second level. And the second level he did with Sanballat, did with Nehemiah, is he started threatening him. In Nehemiah 4, verse 7 to 23, it says, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the, of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So here Sanballat said, I'm not stopping them by ridiculing them, so now I'm going to threaten them. So he sends a message. He says, we've all come together. We've brought all our armies, and we're going to come in, and we're going to march into your city, and we're going to kick over every wall that you've started building. We're going to take everything you've got. He threatened them. So how did Nehemiah respond? He said, guys, we're not going to stop building. Even if this is a big army, even if they can do this, we're not going to stop building. You carry on building. What Nehemiah did is he put some guys on the walls, the watchmen, and he said, you keep watch and you tell us. If the, if the enemy is coming, then we'll respond. If they come close, we'll deal with them. But in the meantime, we're building. So to every worker or most of the workers, or he, made, he put lieutenants and commanders in place, he said, you will have swords on the one hand and you'll have your tools and instruments on the other hand. But you put your swords down, you don't fight. You're not standing around with your swords waiting you build. Your tool is in your hand and you're building. 
But when the watchman shouts and says they're coming, then you drop your tool and then you fight and you defend. How often do we, when the enemy threats us, we stop building and we stand with our sword? And then the enemy succeeded in what he wants to do. Because what does he want to do? Stop your building. The enemy can breathe threats against us all the time. You and I live with the enemy around us. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's here all the time. Now, are we going to be so concerned with him? Are we going to be standing around looking all the time? Where's the enemy? What's the enemy doing? What's he busy? Oh, look at that, what he's doing. Oh, can you see that? And get so caught up in what the enemy is doing that we stop building, or are we going to say, we're building? We're rebuilding our nation. Yes, the enemy's out there, but you know, you can read the news on Monday morning and on your app or whatever, and by 10 o'clock, you're so depressed. And you just want to give up and say, oh, I'm not going to build anymore. What's it worth? No, we're building. As we're rebuilding the things in our church, we're not going to be looking for the problems and not going to be looking for what's wrong and what's the enemy doing and oh, where did the enemy do this and how did this happen? We're just building, man. Amen? We're rebuilding the walls. Because if we've done the rebuilding the walls, he can do what he wants. We, we have stood. And then from a secure place, we will launch and we will go. But we're rebuilding our walls and we're following our calling. When he couldn't put Nehemiah off his game in that, the last thing he did was he became very aggressive. And in, uh, wait, sorry, let me just find my, my right page here. Okay. In, um, in Nehemiah 6, we read in verse 1 and 2, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Sheriffim in, on, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So now they realized, whoops, these guys have continued to build. We can't go into their city anymore. So let's see if we can get them to come to us in a place that we will say, and then make as if we're going to talk, but we're actually going to kill him. So they had a plan to kill and murder Nehemiah to stop the building process. The same spirit is still alive in the world around us. The enemy seeks to harm. And he will always be going around looking at who can he harm. Now, we can become distracted by that or we can focus on what God is calling us to do and love God, serve His purposes. We live in a world right now where perhaps here in South Africa, we don't feel it all that much. But so many of our brothers and sisters of faith all over the world live in real threat for their life. It's quite difficult to find the statistics on what's really happening. But there are a couple of organizations that study these things and one of them is the Center of, for the Study of Global Christianity, an academic research center that monitors worldwide demographic trends in Christianity. They estimate that between the years 2005 and 2015, over a 10-year period, 900 Christians, uh, 900,000, listen carefully, 900,000 <laughs> Christians, not a, good, not a good place to make a joke, but sorry, <laughs> that 900 thousand Christians were killed and martyred for their faith in a 10-year period. That's 90,000 Christians per year across the world. It's quite difficult, but that's the best that they try and get that. When we go on official documents where it's officially declared that somebody has been killed for their faith by a, a local government, and there's only few places that report on these things, where there were cases made against a person and according to the legal system, they were then declared that they could be killed. And it was on the basis of faith. 2015 became the high point in modern history for that 7,000 people were officially killed for being Christians in 2015. 2017, 1,207 people were killed as Christians. These are official figures. These figures do not include the biggest nations where these things happen because they don't report on it. But officially we know, for instance, in Middle Eastern countries, just listen to this, that in 2017, in Pakistan, 76 Christians were killed for their faith. In Syria, 24 were killed. In Somalia, 12. In Egypt, 12. In Afghanistan, 10. In Yemen, 4. In Libya, 2. In Iraq, one person 
was killed for their faith in 2017. The biggest place where this happens the most is in North Korea at the moment. The spirit of opposition that does not want God to do well and for us to live out our calling is alive. And he breathes threats against us all the time. How do we respond to these threats? Do we allow these threats to immobilize us, to let us withdraw and to just put our heads in the sand and just let our faith be private and not practice our faith? I love what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 6 verse 3. He said, why should we stop working? Because I'm doing a good work and I will not come down to you. When he was invited to come and speak, he said, I'm doing a good work. I will not come down. We are doing a good work. Worship team, will you guys join me on stage, please? We are doing a good work. Not good by our definition, but good because we are doing what God has called us to do. You are doing a good work. In your life, you are doing your best to follow God's calling on your life, to love Him, to put Him first in your general call. Perhaps you've got a sense of your specific call and you are engaging and growing and building in that. You are doing a good work. As a, as a nation, we are busy with a good work. As a church, we are busy with a good work. And the work is to build the wall. And we will not come down. We will not stop. We will not let the enemy set the agenda. We will not run around. We will have watchmen on the wall. We will have intercessors. We will have prophetic people that look, that can give us insight, but we will not stop building. We will not get caught up. We will build. We will not be entangled. We will not be entangled in the things of this world and the, the issues and the concerns that the enemy wants to entangle us in. There's things that God calls us to. That's different. When God calls you to step into something, when God calls you to play a positive role in issues of land reform in our nation and to try and, and help us find the right good answers so that more people can have land and have access to land and can own land, so that past wrongs can be addressed and, and that things can be corrected so that we can go forward as a nation and go into the future, but with righteousness and justice. If God calls you to that, then do it. But don't get entangled in things. Don't just get on the bus and get in the hype and you know, spread all the negative stories and, and get all excited about something that we don't understand at this point in time, quite what's going on. Don't get entangled. Build the wall. Where God has put you in front of your house, build the wall. I wonder if you will stand with me. Or please stand with me. I believe this morning this is a, a moment for us in the spirit to as we've been strengthened and encouraged by the Word, to stand in the Spirit with the sword of the Spirit and to allow God to prophetically do something for us as individuals, for us as a church, and for us as a nation. And we're going to sing that song, I, No Longer Slaves, it begins with, You Unravel Me. And I believe in that we want to sing and proclaim today in this place that we will not be entangled we will not be caught in the things of this world. So can I ask you this morning as we sing this song and proclaim this song, that in your general calling of loving God and putting Him first, you will say, Lord, I want to be untangled from anything that keeps me from fulfilling that calling. Untangle me, Lord. The things that distract, the things that steal my energy, that steals my focus, that keeps me from following through on my calling. Untangle me, Lord. In your general, in your specific call, where God has placed you and, in, and you are engaging, say, Lord, let nothing entangle me. Let nothing entangle me. But Lord, come and untangle me so that I can live my calling. So that I can in peace and in freedom not as a slave to the movements of this world, not as a slave to the enemy and to his strategies, but in freedom. Come and serve you, Lord. So as we sing this song, can that be something that is in your heart that we declare? And can we allow and trust the Lord? The Holy Spirit, we invite you into this venue right now in Jesus' name. 
We know you've been with us, but we ask right now for a specific move of your Spirit to come and untangle, to come and set free, to come and release us and position us, Lord, as your people to do the calling, that we may live worthy of the calling with which we have been called, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way among us right now in Jesus' name. Unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies. Till all my feet, you unravel me.
the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child. You split the sea. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. I pray for you that you together with all the saints will be strengthened in your innermost being that you will grasp the height the depth the width the length of the love of God Lord we're going to be about you and about your business Father we love you and we put your kingdom first and Lord we pray for the strength that we will live lives worthy of the calling with which we have been called. As individuals, as a community, as a church, and as a nation, Lord, let us rebuild the wall for your glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, Amen. Amen.